to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Hi, everyone. You're about to listen to a fantastic interview we recorded last week with David Aaron of Serity Partners and Jim Atkinson of STA Wealth Management. Twice during the interview, I erroneously abbreviated the name Serity Partners. The proper name of the firm is Serity Partners, and I've been asked by uh, their compliance department to read the following statement. Um, in the upcoming podcast, all uses of the name Serity Partners and any deviations of the name Serity Partners refer exclusively to Serity Partners LLC, a national wealth management firm headquartered in New York. For more information about Serity Partners, you can visit their website at www.seritypartners.com. I've also put this um, disclaimer on the executive summary of this uh, of this podcast as well. So here you go and uh, enjoy the interview. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 16 of the COO Roundtable. We're going to name this one the stay-at-home episode, as our two guests and myself are all recording this from our respective homes. And the markets have been absolutely bonkers the past few weeks due to the coronavirus fears and its potential impact on the economy. And then I have to think the presidential election later in the year is going to create its own set of volatility as well. So everyone should buckle up for the long term. It seems like it's going to be a bumpy ride for the foreseeable future. My son, Luke, our announcer here on the on the podcast, he's been home from elementary school for two weeks so far with another five weeks at home scheduled. They aren't planning to go back here in California until May 5th. But there's talk that they're, they may not even send the kids back to school at all. So there's possibility that the kids here in California are going to be home till September. So we'll see how that all plays out. I've always joked that throughout my career in financial services, I got into this business in 1997. That was the middle of the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. And then we had the failure of long-term capital management was in 1998 when Russia devalued their currency. Then obviously the dot-com crash of 01. Then we had the, the housing bubble and its subsequent crash in 08 that everybody knows about. Every few years, it seems like people say, boy, we're never going to live through a moment like that again. And <laughs> I've always been kind of a jerk about it. And I usually say, oh, yes, we will. Don't be a fool. There's, there's always cycles to the economy. There's always bubbles. There's bursts. There's bulls. There's bears, et cetera. But this one's weird. I have to say, growing up in the, in the 80s in Southern California, we'd have our recesses canceled from time to time because the smog was so bad. The teacher would literally say to us, you can't go outside and run around today, kids. It's unhealthy to go breathe the air. And we'll just play heads up, seven up during recess today. And I've been guilty of it. I've said, boy, we're never going to go through a period like that again. But here we are telling us, you know, don't go outside your house. It's, un it's unhealthy to go outside. So this is truly remarkable times. But life goes on. We're going to conquer this just like we've conquered other turbulent times before. That's what's so great about our country, and, and that's what's so great about the human race in general, for that matter. And so with that said, we want to continue with our normal content here on the COO Roundtable. We have two very accomplished guests today. And we'll talk a bit about what their respective firms are doing from a disaster recovery perspective. And we'll talk about their specific roles in those business continuity plans for their organizations. But without further ado, I want to introduce David Aaron formerly of EMM and now a partner at Serity Partners. EMM sold to Serity in January of this year. We'll talk to him a, a little bit about that. And joining David is Jim Atkinson of STA Wealth Management. Jim is COO and head of M&A. So Jim is in charge of onboarding advisors to STA, and David has just gone through the M&A process from the other angle. He just onboarded his firm uh, EMM, that he onboarded them into Serity Partners. So we can talk a little bit about those two roles as well. So welcome, David and Jim. Good morning. Thank you for having us on the show. Absolutely. 
So, David, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you give us a little a little background of your new firm, Sarity Partners? Sure. So, this is new to us, just a couple of months. Sarity Partners started in 2009, and we now have about $26 billion in assets. We have 250 members of our team in 11 offices around the country. And, you know, our group came over in its entirety in January. EMM actually started in 1968, and we had 37 people on our New York team, about $3 billion in assets. Our ideal client looks like somebody who has $25 million or plus in liquid assets. It's generally a pretty complex family. We're working on trusts. We're working on governance issues, estate planning. Uh, we have a tax team if uh, they don't have a, you know, an outside accountant, and we love to work very closely with our advisors. In terms of how that slotted in with 30 partners, all that is is right up, you know, their core strengths. And in addition, we have uh, two other significant parts of the practice, which is executive financial counseling, which is where we're taking on an entire uh, executive team of of a large company. We do the same kind of planning, investing work that we would do for a client, but it's the company that starts out with the, empl- the employment side. And we have an entire retirement services uh, part of the business as well that deals with retirement plans for companies. In terms of you know how we've historically grown the company at EMM, it was, it was entirely organic. Going back five to 10 years, I would say we were very private. We did no marketing. We used to joke around, say we wait for the phone to ring and maybe we'd pick up the call. About five years ago, we decided to, to really launch a marketing and business development program. We invested in people. We invested in activities. We decided to actively participate in our community. We are involved in speaking events. We do a lot of writing. We host events for both clients and centers of influence. We got pretty active over the last couple of years in social media. All of that is part of what 30 Partners does but a couple of other really nice things that we were able to uh, to become part of. They have a much more significant dedicated marketing team. We have somebody who's actively involved in uh, developing joint ventures and other partnership relationships across the country. And then, you know, as you know, evidenced by us and, and uh, recent news, there's been a string of acquisitions. So um, where it fits, uh, we've been tucking in other, other firms into the, into the group. One of the things I would say is really interesting in terms of uh, the long-term growth is this executive financial counseling area, because rather than, you know, I'd almost call, you know, the door-to-door combat of finding an, an individual client, a prospect, somebody in need, the executive financial counseling is hand, handling us uh, numerous potential long-term prospects at any given time. So we might onboard, you know, 20 to 50 executives who, you know, if we do a great job, uh, they could be clients for a very long time as they grow their wealth. That's that's interesting because, I mean, everybody, you get one client, right, that's on that executive team and you're hoping. <laughs> you're saying if I give good service, maybe, hopefully, they're going to refer somebody else and then now I've got two. And But you're doing, you do one swoop and you onboard all of them at the same time. Yeah, I mean, we bring we bring knowledge scale by understanding the benefits program across the organization, understanding the bonus packages, the retirement packages, everything like that. So we can really deliver that to them. But then each one has their own individual needs, and we may be lucky enough to work with them, you know, down the road after the company engagement finishes. That's great. That's very smart. I like it. So Jim, um, give us a, an overview of STA Wealth Management. Yeah. Well, thanks first for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Apologize in advance. I'm here, Doc 
dogs barking or teenagers harassing me. I guess just come towards <laughs> it. I think it's a new normal. But uh, STA was previously Street Talk Advisors, and that was a small team at a small broke dealer in Houston. We're currently on the air, uh, KPRC 950. That's why they came up with the name, Street Talk Advisors. Street Talk was founded in 2005. At that time, about $150 million in AUM. The change to STA was a result of an ownership change. It's occurred in 2013. We've had significant growth. Firms done well. From that time till now, uh, currently at $2.1 billion, depending on what the market's doing on any given day, probably between 2 and 2.1 right now. 44 employees. I'd say our ideal client kind of depends on which team you're talking to internally. So we support multiple teams and they all have a little bit of a different focus, but for the most part, it's going to fall into, we're in Houston, so obviously energy executives, entrepreneurs, mass affluent or ultra high net worth. Uh, most of the clients are individuals. We intend to maintain that focus. Our focus and the vision for the future, uh, really, it's been through organic growth, radio show referrals. We do publish quite a number of articles and guides for our website visitors and monthly subscribers. We have a retirement survival guide. Uh, we recently republished our uh, layoff survival guide. I think it's kind of relevant with what's going on right now. As far as the, the vision goes, we're looking to more, make more of a digital push going forward. Uh, more, we have more refined target personas. This will apply to both advisors and individual clients, and uh, that will result in us developing more and more guides based on those target personas. So the guides will be used in Google Ads, LinkedIn, InMail. So we're trying to have a, a balanced approach between our organic and our inorganic growth, as you mentioned before, I'm head of M&A, and we've done fairly well. We've got a solid funnel. It's a big focus for us, and we've had a good deal of success in this area, and we intend to continue to balance really between the two, organic and inorganic. We're not going to focus on just one area. That's great. Yeah, that balanced approach, that's definitely the, the wisest way to go about it. And so, Jim, that, that's the firm, and now let's talk about you uh, personally. You and I have talked in the past about the fact you're from Southern California, but you've been living in Texas for 25 years now. So give us a little bit of, of your backstory and how you came about to be the COO and head of M&A at STA. Yep. You and I had a similar background in Southern California. I also played heads up, heads up seven up. I guess maybe that's a national thing, but I was right there with people with a small, no go outside and you got to stay inside. But uh, I've been there 25 years. I actually live in Austin. <clears throat> the office is in, in Houston, but I live in Austin. I go between the two cities. Uh, I've been licensed for 27 years, held several positions in the industry, been a broker, AI product sales, investment banking, custody sales at Fidelity. I was there for about 12 years. Did a short stint at Schwab in the same role. Uh, held an EVP role with another RIA in Houston, which was in effect the COO role, so very similar. Uh, I've known the founders of STA since around 2003, so we've known each other for quite a while and have always had mutual respect. We get along great. Culture fit's always been there. And uh, I guess about three years ago, we were sitting around having breakfast, kind of talking, and we'd always kind of maybe hinted towards doing something together. And it just seemed like STA had the growth had grown large enough to support the role, and it was really time to put it together. So, so we did. And every day, we enjoy working together. We work hard as a team to deliver on our primary focus, which is client and advisor experience. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of it. Client and advisor experience. That's that sums up the COO role perfectly. <laughs> and that's great. And so, David, you're the second CIO that we've had on the podcast. I know at EMM, your title was co-CEO and CIO. So you're balancing both operational responsibilities as well as investment oversight. So tell us your professional background and how you've navigated 30 years in the business. Sure. So I came about this from really from the trading and risk management side dating back to 1987. So one of my early experiences was on the trading desk Bankers Trust during the stock market crash back then. I was in the derivatives trading group. 
fast forward quite a few years, and I joined a risk management startup that was providing software tools to the banking industry, you know, as part of the big tech boom of, of the late 90s. And I did that for quite a few years. That firm ultimately went on to raise venture capital and was acquired by one of the big software aggregators in the industry. I went on to start a, a small hedge fund, grew that modestly in numbers that would not seem that appealing today, but was pretty uh, interesting at the time. Uh, and all that was really a perfect training ground for when I joined EMM in 2006. Uh, we had been building out our own investment research capabilities for, for quite some time, and we decided to expand that, that area and, and have more dedicated resources. As part of that role, you know, and I've never really worked that much with clients, part of my responsibility was to, to start working with clients, which uh, prepared me well for uh, what was ultimately management succession. Uh, we lost one of our founding partners in 2014. Uh, and uh, myself and uh, my partner Lloyd ended up becoming co-CEOs. And yes, those are sirens in the background. That's New York City. <laughs> um, so fast forward another five or six years, and, and Lloyd and I, through our planning, thinking about uh, strategic plan and what we wanted to accomplish for the next 50 years, uh, led us to identifying Clarity Partners as a great fit for for opportunities for the for for our team for um, making sure that we could retain our clients and make sure we could grow our, our technology and keep up with the times. And so we recently joined and I'm now a partner at Saturday Partners. Perfect. So as I said in my opening remarks, given the fact that we're all sitting at home recording this podcast and given the fact that both of you work at larger than average RIAs, it is no small feat to move operations of firms your size to remote locations. So let's start with Jim. How has STA implemented your business continuity plan during this coronavirus situation that we find ourselves in? Yeah, well, I, I don't think a few weeks ago any of us expected to be to have the entire country on lockdown. It, it is a yeah. bit surreal. I look at my neighbors. I'm afraid they're all getting drunk and that, but I guess that's okay. For us, it starts with great people in our firm, well-defined process. Uh, we feel that we have a top-tier tech stack. Solid organic and organic growth has helped support that. So with respect to the business disruption, RAs are required to have a business continuity plan. We're based in Houston, so this is something that uh, you'll actually need to implement every few years during a hurricane season. Uh, it happens, so we're not totally unfamiliar with this concept. Our compliance officer and business continuity leadership team got together a few weeks ago to discuss this possibility, and uh, we worked together to deploy a plan. We held meetings with the entire office uh, to prep for the deployment of this plan. Stayed in constant communication. This helps to ensure we're supporting one another and maintaining our standard. We had another program that we were using to communicate via video and, and conference calls. We switched to Zoom about a month ago. So I think it was timely. Uh, turned out to be a great product. So with respect to technology, again, we worked hard to assemble an excellent tech stack. It's all web-based. Uh, enables us to deliver the same high-quality standard that we hold. So we rehearsed this a bit. We had the entire team go out, practice, work from home, work out a few bugs. Um, and uh, we have an incredible collaborative staff and culture. So it's it's nice to have uh, very supportive at times like this. I think it would be difficult if you didn't have that, but uh, everyone's kind of rowing together and, and pulling together. Uh, with respect to the market drop, we run balanced portfolios with a tactical tilt. So when things started to drop, our investment team pivoted our portfolios and we weathered the storm quite well so far. So we've naturally seen a drop in billings, but maybe not to the degree you might expect. Uh, we onboarded a new advisor in Q1 and also had several large clients close. 
And as a result, uh, we're able to uh, add new assets, keep the total AUM uh, about the same. So I think uh, we feel pretty fortunate given the circumstances. I know it's been rough for a lot of folks out there, but at least we're holding up fairly well. That's great. You know, you mentioned the, you know, it is an SEC requirement that every RA has a business continuity plan. But in my experience, I feel like a lot of firms focus on the plan, meaning the document. And they figure, let's just make sure the doc, you know, you review it every year. It's part of your compliance program and you review the document and you make sure the document is in good shape. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of firms out there that, that don't do a great deal of testing of, you know, could everybody actually work from home? You've got, you know, like you said, where you're physically located, you have to, you have to test because of the hurricanes that you guys go through every once in a while. But there's a lot of firms out there that they, hey, our document is in tip top shape, but they haven't done a whole lot of testing. So I think this is some firms out there have struggled a bit and been caught yeah. flat-footed. But. Right. I mean, the, the SEC walks in the door. You've got the document, right? You can produce it and say, yep. hey, we've got one. But in Southern California, how often do you have to actually dust off and use it? And, right. and you're right. We've had to practice with that. Being hurricane season and flood, uh, it happens. Every couple of years, we're using it. So there was not much dust on it. Yeah, good. So David, talk to us about Sarity, a very large firm. How have you guys implemented your work from home policy? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about testing the plan. I mean, usually part of a disaster recovery plan when you have multiple offices is to be able to use some of those other offices. And now with virtually everything, <laughs> everything shut down, that really, uh, you know, takes away that, that option. But this is, we didn't expect this kind of situation to come up so quickly after the merger, but it's a perfect case study of what we were thinking about when we decided to merge. I mean, Lloyd and I really felt that we wanted to be spending more of our time with the client. And throughout this turmoil, we have spent a tremendous amount of time, us and our entire team, talking to clients virtually nonstop. And one of the amazing things is, is that we really have not had to think about uh, this plan has just happened around us. You know, it started out a few weeks ago. You know, we got, we were getting a, a few questions from, you know, our team. Can I work at home? And Lloyd said to me, you know, should we set up a policy? And I said, well, I think that's why we sold the company. We don't have to set up the policy, you know. And so there was an executive team, an ops team that was working around us, developing the, that policy. Well, we, we carried on. They gave us a lot of initial local discretion to protect our people, listen to specific needs and requests. But one of the real key things is there's just been incredible communication, really frequent communication, daily updates, health check-ins. We get a couple of times a week, there's a health survey that's sent around and a survey on, on how well your, your work from home environment is doing and any suggestions that something came, you know, there are a number of requests. Quite a few of us at the office have dual monitor set up. So, you know, there's a little bit loss of efficiency when you move to a single monitor and, and that's come through in, in these surveys. And, you know, this week we're, you know, we're gonna, uh, the tech team is gonna be helping us set up dual monitors for people who, you know, who want to have that. The tech support team has been great, both internal and the external, making sure that everybody's work environment was, was operating smoothly. We had been using Zoom, which has turned out to be a terrific tool. We had a couple of weeks ago, we had 180 people from the team uh, on board. We've implemented teams that have been part of our, our tech stack and that's worked really well for keeping in touch, for remoting into our offices of VPN. Uh, one of the other things I would say is really important. It's, this has been an opportunity to grow the culture. The Teams app has been fantastic. 
On there, we've set up separate groups. There's a physical fitness challenge. There's a my home office space. We had uh, somebody from our team do a company-wide yoga session that people were able to zoom into. And we've had these uh, company-wide Zoom video sessions. We've had a, a casual Friday lunch that people from our team can join in. And yeah, there've been lots of babies and dogs on there. So it's really been an opportunity to, to keep connected with everybody using the technology. On the ops side, they have a daily meeting. Our specific, you know, New York team, we also have a daily meeting. We review how everybody on the team doing, how are the clients doing, any particular issues, how are we doing with operations, uh, any operational issues, how technology working. We have a, an update from the investment team and we have an update from the tax team because so much has been going on in terms of uh, delay on, on uh, tax filings or whatnot. So all in all, it's, it's working extremely well, and we're just glad to have the support of our ops and technology team at Saturday Partners. You, you raised a couple of good points. One, I love the, the, what you said. This, this really is a great opportunity to, to increase culture at firms right now. While everyone is physically separated, it actually does bring everybody together. I think that's a great point. And then the other thing you said, which is very relevant, is I do think most plans were, well, if you have multiple offices, well, we'll just flip everything to that office. Uh, we'll just forward the phones to that. You know, if this office, we'll just forward the phones there and then they can answer the phones. But this is an interesting situation. I think as people are reviewing their plans going forward, it's, it's okay. Yes, we can just, unless, <laughs> uh, unless uh, we're in a, a, a strange situation where none of the offices are, are available. So that's definitely going to have to be a, an adjustment to people's plans. And then one last thing I'll say about what you said was, I think, again, a lot of people just assume, yeah, we'll, we'll just set people up with dual monitors at home. It's like a 60-day delivery time right now for monitors. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get them on, on Amazon. For myself, we were able to get a monitor stand ordered, <laughs> but I actually had to run to the yeah. office and pull one of the monitors out of the office, and, just, and then I just used the stand at home. But you can't get monitors delivered right now or, or keyboards because or, everybody's setting up their home offices. So Yeah, we a lot of, talked about that yeah. you know, two, two to three weeks ago. We started that process, and we were ordering monitors, and they were available That's great. a couple of days at, at that point in time. Yep. No, that's good. Yeah, a lot of things we none of us thought about, you know, fully. Everybody's planned for some downtime, but this is definitely one that, that not everybody was anticipating. So, so let's talk about M&A. As we discussed, David, I think you're the first guest that we've had that's gone through an acquisition from the seller's perspective. Many years ago, I had to lead the integration of Luminous Capital going into First Republic, and that had a slew of operational challenges. So I'm sure you've had your your hands full. Have you had any lessons learned that you can share with us in, in terms of, of moving into the, the larger firm? Sure. I mean, overall, the, re the results have been really excellent. Again, we couldn't have, you know, wished for a, a significant test like this, but it's played out really nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, the overall lessons, I mean, this, this goes back to, you know, maybe about a year and a half to two years ago when we, when we started thinking about this. Uh, and, and the first one is, is just, you know, really know your own people and their goals. At the end of the day, you know, this isn't about what I wanted to do personally. You know, the business is really all about the team and the client. You, you know, you, you don't keep your team, you don't keep your clients, you don't have a business. So, you know, we really did an assessment about what the team wanted to do going forward. And some of the conclusions we came to is, look, we just want, we wanted a bigger platform. We wanted to grow. We were growing nice organically. But, you know, we didn't think that that was a big enough opportunity. We, we wanted more colleagues around us. We wanted to have a, a deeper bench. We had a really broad bench, but not deep. Uh, 
you know, we've done a nice job with infrastructure, but we're starting to outgrow some of our technology tools and, and we wanted to be able to make significant investments, you know, into the future, which we thought was, was really expensive. We wanted to, to have a way of doing that. Uh, we thought we could be doing better on the HR side. We wanted to expand our benefits. Um, we, you know, Lloyd and I, you know, in, in spending time, you know, with the clients was taking away from, from running the business. And we wanted an, uh, you know, a dedicated executive team. Uh, and we really wanted to grow through acquisition, but it was just something that we never had the capacity for. We didn't have the, the wherewithal. We knew it would, would take uh, time. It would take, you know, probably hiring people, you know, dedicated to do that. Uh, and, and we had a great investment research platform, but we felt it could be really used across a much larger client base. We wanted to apply that, and that, that had, um, you know, financial implications for us. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, uh, we went out into the marketplace, and, and 30 partners really gave us all of that. So, you know, but, but it came down to, like, first starting to think about what, what is it that your people want. Um, second thing I would say is, um, you know, and, and you hear this all over the place, you know, it's all about the cultural fit and it absolutely really is. Uh, so, you know, um, really, you know, if you're contemplating, you know, doing, doing this kind of uh, merger with, with another firm, really get together with your new colleagues uh, before you close, many times in many different settings. Uh, speak to them you know, about how the firm is operated, speak to them about the pain points, speak to them about, you know, what they like about it. Uh, talk to, to, you know, if there are other groups that have been, uh, you know, uh, merged in, make sure you understand how it went for them. Ask lots of questions to many people across the firm, you know, and, and sort out the story. But it has to be a cultural fit. Um, you know, and that, that kind of leads into this last point is, I mean, do your homework so you don't get surprised. I mean, you can, you know, there could be many surprises uh, so far uh, for us. It's really been been all pleasant surprises. <laughs> One of the things that we'd heard about Charity Partners is that they were really looking to build a, a firm of best practices, and a number of the um, the, the groups in, inside of Charity Partners had told us how when they came on board, they were told that uh, this area would be a best practices and would be adopted, and it had been. Uh, well, you know, we're we're really pleased that so far, even inside of just three months, a number of the the um, you know of of our uh, areas that you know we thought could be best practices have been identified by the firm and are being adopted across the entire firm. So that's really you know fantastic for us. You know, it brings real pride of ownership to our team, and it really makes for a much uh, more palatable integration and uh, and working with the rest of the group. Fantastic. That's a great list that you just rattled through. That was that was great. Um, Jim, uh, as we said, SDA has been active in acquiring and onboarding new advisors, um, and that's that's sort of your focus. So, what best best practices can you share uh, from from an M and A perspective? Yeah, I'll I'll try to keep it high level. Uh, for one, I think Dave did a great job of sort of summing it up, and some of this will probably overlap. Um, there's an entire podcast dedicated just to the subject, so it's easy to get lost in the weeds and. And maybe we can just cover some of the highlights. But, you know, I would say he mentioned it. You know, it really does start with culture and fit. It comes first. And if you don't have that, there's not much more to talk about. And so, you know, initially it's is the AUM there, is the revenue there, do the, do the assets sort of look similar? Um, and so for the first two or three meetings, we have them, we hold them in our office. 
Can we go through those types of things if it appears to be there may be a fit? Uh, then we pivot to lunches and dinners. And I think what David was saying is that, you know, he said a lot of different settings. And he's right. Uh, you hold some of the office, you pivot, lunches, dinners. And a lot of times for us, it ends up with a fishing trip. Uh, we're, in, we're in Houston. We're near the Gulf. Uh, we like to take folks out and have a good time. It's still much more on a personal level. So we want to get to know them really well, much more than just beyond the book. But you've got you've to gotta have that as well. And you've got to have detailed workflow and processes because there's so much that can get missed. And so you really need to understand as much as possible the advisor and the book. And I would say, um, you know, stay away from exceptions. If you do business a certain way, stick to it. Uh, and don't make exceptions just because it's an advisor that you think is really attractive. So you've got to be very careful. Our workflows are different based on uh, multiple factors. Protocol, non-protocol, you know, what do the employment agreements look like? Uh, for us, once it appears an advisor may be a fit, uh, we go and speak to our attorney. So we involve counsel pretty quickly. Uh, these agreements can all look very different. You really need to understand it. So the investments, uh, what are they holding? Insurance products, loans, uh, what types of funds, all structured products. And a lot of times what we find is the advisors, uh, they may have legacy holdings and they're not thinking about it or you know, it's something they purchased 20 years ago. And they don't think about it. It's not top of mind. Um, and in some places, you know, if it's not protocol, you're having a hard time getting any sort of accurate data. So you've got to be very careful and collect all of it. Uh, be clear on the types of software that they're used to using. How do they create plans? How do they manage their data? How do they calculate performance? Um, do they like to manage their clients' investments? Uh, do they want your investment team to do that for them? How are they billing? Have they discounted their fees? And does that work in your world? Uh, could be a problem. Uh, you need to have a process for modeling and discovering all this data. Uh, you don't want to find after the fact the advisors holding SMAs or proprietary funds or something that you can't hold. And what do you know those clients have large embedded gains? Big problem. You know, you don't want to ever end up there. Uh, I would recommend a good disclosure document. Uh, you need to spell out how your firm conducts business, uh, what you'll do, what you won't do, you know, what works for you, what doesn't. Um, and again, you know, try to limit exceptions. Uh, I would also recommend uh, excellent promotional materials. You know, when an advisor comes on board, he's now selling your firm to his clients. And to make that conversion, um, he needs to have good training and be comfortable telling the pitch. Uh, you don't want to just say, you know, here's your seat, here's some technology, go for it. So he really needs to understand the story and put it in his words. So uh, a transition team, uh, got to have a great transition team that understands how to make a transition, the legalities of each break, and manages to the guidance of your counsel. Don't want to make a mistake. So uh, when our new advisors walk in the door, transition team is ready and waiting for them. The desk is set up, computers configured, to-do list is waiting. Uh, we go as far as setting their Outlook calendar. We preset internal meetings for the next two months, uh, covering all the subjects that we've laid out for them. We don't want them to have to think about much. Show up, you know, start reaching out to your clients. Here's the materials you need. Outlook calendar is preset. So we want to make sure we've looked at it from every possible angle before they break. In every break that uh, we do, we go back, uh, we do a review of what occurred, how we could improve, and we'll rework the workflows or you know whatever it is that we need to do. Transitions require about three months of heads down, late night work for really the entire team. So our staff commits to that as well. Uh, after about six months, we consider the book um, pretty much transitioned for the most part. There's usually some stragglers. Uh, then the advisor can pivot to conducting business as usual. 
Um, there's much more to transition, but I, hopefully that helps. No, I I think that that time frame is right. Three months to six months is is exactly right. And I love the point you made about stay away from exceptions. Um, the 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 buyer, you do business one way, and from a cultural perspective, it has to match. From from uh, an investment perspective, it has to match. I think a lot of uh, um, firms get into trouble. They get so excited about an, uh, an, a specific AUM number. And they say, well, for this one, let's make exceptions. They don't do business the way we do. The culturally, they're not exactly aligned. Investment uh, philosophy isn't exactly aligned, but we're going to make it work. And it just gets so hard. It's so hard to make it work anyway. <laughs> but when you when you've got uh, when everything isn't lined up, um, I, I love that. Stay away from from the exceptions uh, if at all possible. Yep. Yeah, so. Jim, outside of M&A then, um, you and I have talked that your firm recently adopted uh, strategies that were spelled out in the book Traction. And that book has been mentioned on this podcast uh, several times, and I keep running into it with some of our clients as well. Um, so talk to us about how you're using the book's framework to document, quote, how we do things here. Yeah. Well, it was about a year ago, um, Luke, our CEO, who I, I think, you know, and I were sharing book ideas. Uh, you know, I think we read probably 20 to 25 books a year uh, on average, probably like most folks do. And um, at the time, we were looking for better ways to measure a firm's performance. And we were kicking around books that we've read and ideas. And there's a lot of books that have anecdotes um, and stories, which you can glean, glean a lot of information. They're very helpful. But uh, what we felt is we really needed to define process with specific steps, really a guidebook on how to do this. And so I gave him Measure What Matters, which I had recently finished. And he said, yeah, I'd like to recommend Traction. And uh, I'd already downloaded it. It was the third book in my queue. So I said, okay, well, I'll just let me bump that up and I'll, I'll read that next. We got together about a week later and I was blown away. I was like, man, this is exactly what we need. And, you know, Luke said, hey, you know what? I agree. Let's do it. So we decided that would be our guide. And I think you know, there's no book that's going to be perfect. And I think anybody who's used Traction or read it would agree that it's, if not 100%, it covers all industries. But we felt that maybe it's 80%. And that's a pretty good start. So, um, you know, uh, we felt that that would build a foundation. And then the other 20%, uh, we'd find, you know, our own way. So it's been useful. Uh, but you've got to fully implement it, and it's, that's not easy. And a lot of firms will tell you, man, I got into it, and you read it over, it looks easy. It's not. Uh, you've really got to adapt it and put into place everything it recommends. So it requires continual attention uh, to really sink into the culture. We have monthly meetings where we assign chapters and projects for everybody in the leadership team as well as department heads. Um, at this point in time, everybody in the firm, I think, has probably got a copy and has read parts, if not the whole thing. And I would say we're just now starting to see the traction process become ingrained throughout the entire firm. It's, it's not that we're not following the process, but it's just become sort of automatic. You know, it's, it's like a golf swing or something where you just, you're not even thinking about it, it's just starting to happen now. So it's been a tremendous help uh, to get us organized and push the firm forward. Uh, it pushes the firm forward in 90 day increments. So you're not trying to bite off too much. Um, and between that and our leadership teams and tactical teams, uh, we feel for the most part that gets us for right now to about 100% of what we need. So I, we would recommend it for anybody looking for a more efficient, effective way to run the business. 
Did you bring in anyone from, uh, what are they called, implementers? Did you bring in an EOS implementer, or did you just, after reading it, you just have figured it out internally how to, how to implement? You know, we probably should have, um, and we've heard of folks that did that, but we just thought we're just going to bite the bullet, and we're going to mm-hmm. read the book. And I think before Luke and I promoted it to the whole uh, executive leadership team, I think he and I read it like four and five times. And yeah. we had a lot of notes and our books, um, you know, they're, they're stickies and highlights and, you know, you really almost got to become a bit. We felt and Luke pushed the idea of we should be able to train other firms on how to do this at the end of the day. If you're going to be that good at it, you probably need to know it inside and out. So let's just dive in. And, and that's what we did. That's great. So, David, maybe not necessarily framed around the, the specific book traction, but but let me ask you how how you go about implementing process at, at your firm. Uh, sure. Well, actually, I mean, I was lucky enough a few years ago to meet the traction folks uh, as part of my uh, Vistage CEO group, uh, and we did. Uh, I, I was uh, enchanted with the idea. You know, read the book in detail, brought it to the executive team, uh, and and we played around with it. I'll tell you. I mean, some of the kind of the, the super high level uh, ideas that, that we've taken away with it and, you know, has really helped uh, with my management style, you know, is first of all, you know, instead of being stuck in the day-to-day first and working towards a long-term plan, is start, start with your vision, start with your five or 10-year plan and then st- and, and work backwards uh, to small and smaller increments so that you can, you know, start you know, build it, be sure that you're building in the right direction. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, before, before traction, I mean, we used to sit and brainstorm and ideas, you know, that we wanted to improve the firm and improve different groups and different areas of investment. And it was just, it was so overwhelming, the, the amount of projects that we felt that we wanted to get done, uh, you know, in a given year. And, and mostly they didn't get done. Uh, so, you know, traction really taught me you know, take a few key initiatives each quarter or each year that you think are going to you know, move the needle and focus on implementing them. Um, and then, and then, you know, lastly is, you know, it goes back to your people um, just to be sure that you communicate with them really <laughs> well, what your strategy is, what your goals are, what these initiatives are. Uh, you know, you think you can, you can say, um, you know, tell them your strategy, you know, one time and they're going to absorb it. Uh, not a chance. I mean, we're a relatively small team, you know, 37 people. You have to repeat that message over and over again. And that's what I'd say that, you know, Kurt, uh, you know, my new boss uh, and the executive team do really well. They've, they've managed to, to define, you know, a very simple, small set of goals that the, you know, that the entire team is working on and we're all pulling together for them, and and those goals and the progress to those goals is made apparent to you know not just the partners of the firm, you know, but to everybody in the firm every single month. And I think that collectively means that everybody feels invested and in that everybody is moving in the same direction. That's great. So that discussion leads to another topic that I think is difficult for many COOs and RIA leaders. Um, so David, I'll start with you. How do you drive change at your firm and actually get buy-in from from the employees and, and your business partners? 
Oh my God. Well, I mean, first of all, some, <laughs> some, pe some people in a firm, you know, just naturally love change and they're always, you know, they always want to improve and grow and some people just hate it. And, and some of those people who hate it are really important to the organization. Uh, I remember when we moved our reporting system away from an Excel spreadsheet to a database system. Uh, you know, we, we had one guy in the firm who just, he was absolutely resisting it. And you know what, yeah, you have to find the, the, you know, what is going to incentivize him to do it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary. In this particular case, it was the fact that we created within our database, not just that we're storing the, the, the performance, but we're actually uh, storing the statement next to each line item. And for him, that meant that he could never be picked off with saying that he had entered the wrong value, that the numbers were right there uh, to support him all the time. And that made all the difference. Uh, but, but I mean, otherwise, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what I've come to believe is you really need to create incentives that drive behavior in the direction of the goals. Um, you know, so for example, <laughs> um, you know, if, if you're trying to grow your business inorganically and you, uh, uh, organically and you're trying to bring in new, new clients, uh, you know, make sure that that the people who are doing that are going to be incentivized to bring to bring in the business. Uh, make sure that the people who are supporting them are also part of that program. You know, Serity Partners has an incentive equity program, uh, so it's a it's a great way for people to to increase their ownership stake in the business by developing new business. Uh, and you know, and then you know, for example, you know, at, at EMM, you know, we always had this gray line as to what it you know, what it took to become a partner in the firm. Well, Serity Partners has done a terrific job of defining that partnership path and knowing exactly what it is. But so by communicating those, those ideas out and giving the proper incentives, you can drive behavior. Um, you know, and, and as I said before, you know, communicating those targets to the entire team, having the transparency, but then driving accountability. So it's not just that there's a goal out there. But what is your role in, in achieving the goal? And what's the time frame to get it so that, you know, people know that they have to get something done by a certain period of time? That's great. It's communication, 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 and then accountability. I love it. Um, Jim, what, what strategies do you have for, for driving change at, at STA? Uh, well, much of the change is implemented in our leadership and tactical teams. Um, this is not found attraction. I think I mentioned that before. Uh, we implemented this as it just seemed to make sense. So ideas bubble up, rocks are assigned, uh, rocks being termed for uh, interaction for projects. And uh, each uh, leadership team has representation from the relevant groups around the firm. So depending on the focus of a leadership team, we'll have appropriate stakeholder representation. So you know, we don't wanna have uh, decisions made to bubble, we want to make sure that it always gets bubbled up to a leadership team and that they handle it. So that occurs before any significant decisions are made. So we always consult teams to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. So that helps with getting adoption. Uh, we don't want to run into a situation where, you know, decisions are made without enough thought and input. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times you just forget that the more voices you get in the room, and, you know, people will see things from different angles. And they might point out things you're missing or a flaw in your thought process. So we encourage input and we encourage folks challenge us. I'll give you an example. Uh, we've got a technology leadership team that I chair and it was the first one we created. 
and we decided uh, right after implemented traction that we really needed to overhaul our portfolio management software. Just as David was mentioning, right? This is one that touches everybody and it's complex and it's gonna be very hard to change and you can see the resistance on it. And um, so uh, we knew it was gonna be a major undertaking, you know, six to nine months to convert. So it took three months to evaluate all of the options. So the team consisted of stakeholders from various departments. Uh, they all did their own research, reporting back to the team on a weekly basis. Um, so we were all over this one. Um, twice we felt we were close to a vote and realized, nope, back to the board, still have more questions, more things came up. Um, and it was nice getting together in a group because groups would say, hey, I'm still struggling with this question. Um, and then other folks would chime in and either help push it forward uh, or it would create more issues, realize that there was much more to the question than we had considered, that they had other dynamics that sort of overlapped. So we continued the work. Uh, after three months, we were ready to take a final vote, and we asked each member to rank the areas of importance and why it mattered before they voted. So I think this is really important. By doing this, um, you know, you get the other stakeholders. They're listening and they're educated on the importance of some of the other votes. So they realize, wow, you know, I, I mean, I, I want to vote for the other product, but geez, these guys, I mean, it's very important that they get what they need or they can't do their job. So at the end of the day, you know, they may not get what they voted for, but they're okay with that. Um, we follow this process with each product we evaluate. Um, we've got exit response and acceptance and adoption. Um, so far, no real hurdles. Once we come out with it, you know, those stakeholders will go back to their team. They'll say, hey, the vote went a different direction, but, you know, it's okay. And let me explain why we need to do this. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's always clear why the vote went uh, Went one way or the other. That's great. You both. Um, I can't. I can't thank you both enough for for taking the time today in the, in the middle of all this craziness to uh, to talk to us. You've you've shared some some great insights, business continuity, change management, um, a lot of topics that I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from. So so David and Jim, thank you. Thank you both. Well, I appreciate you, it. Really appreciate and, it. Uh, you know, look uh, look forward to to hearing uh, you know other other great advisors uh, share their thoughts uh, on these topics as well. Well, thank you. So that's a wrap on uh, episode 16. Um, everyone, please please go wash your hands and uh, more importantly, hug your family and FaceTime with your loved ones that aren't living it in home in your home with you at the at the time. Um, we'll be recording episode 17 near the end of April, and it looks like just last night, President Trump extended the social distancing guidelines until April 30th. So most likely, um, episode 17 is also going to be a stay-at-home episode, and we'll be sure to cover more uh, business continuity topics in, in that one. Um, last week, Michael Kitsis was kind enough. He asked us to write an article on his website about how to pivot quickly to a work-from-home model. So check that out on, on his website or on our blog at, at pfiadvisors.com. There's some very granular and specific recommendations in that article. So hopefully that's going to help a lot of firms. And then also uh, last Friday, uh, March 27th, I published an article at wealthmanagement.com titled How Top RIA COOs Are Responding to COVID-19. And I interviewed a, a, uh, everyone I interviewed for that article has been on this podcast. Um, they detailed what they're doing to navigate this tricky situation, having their employees stuck at home, trying to balance the, the crazy markets and, and, and give great client service, but also all the family obligations that are going on as well. So you can find that. Uh, that's at wealthmanagement.com or, again, at our, at our website. Um, and then we're still publishing new content every week on our blog. So feel free to subscribe to the blog and, and to this podcast. 
thanks everyone and and we will talk to you soon